today we have the privilege of hearing from someone who uh, has been someone that I've looked up to for many years, and he has been a mentor of mine, someone who has intentionally sought to encourage me and challenge me throughout the years, and he's become a friend, a dear friend as well. Uh, Brian Warren and his wife, Danielle, are here today, and they are from the same home church where I grew up, from Countryside in Olathe, and in 1999, they were sent to be missionaries in Mexico. They've been in the state of Sinaloa since that point. They started off in a little village called Hawada that you've probably never heard of, and then they moved from there some years later to a slightly larger village called Mochicaui, which you've probably also not heard of. You may have heard of Los Mochis. Uh, that's the nearest slightly larger town. They have Walmart and Home Depot and things like that in Los Mochis. And some of you may know uh, El Chapo, who was the head of the Sinaloa cartel. He was arrested there. So that's their neighborhood. Um, and that's the claim to fame for Los Mochis, at least in recent years. Uh, we took a small group of people from this congregation and went down in January to visit the Warrens. And I was very glad for some of the people in this church congregation to get to meet them and meet the people that they minister to and the people they minister with. Um, the churches down there pray for us. They pray for, for me. They call me Pastor Jaime. They pray for you as well, the congregation at Monte de Redención, as they call it, um, Redemption Hill Church. So the churches down there, the believers down there, they love this body, they pray for this body, and we regularly pray for them as well. If you've noticed, we do uh, prayers for missions, prayers for the gospel um, most Sundays, and there's just a few sort of um, mission fields we rotate through praying for. And last week we prayed for the Warren. Some of you may remember that. So now you can put, if you've not met them yet, put a face with the name. So Brian and Danielle, thank you guys for coming. Uh, they have two kids, two adult kids, uh, Dan and his wife Mariana, and their little girl live in California. And Dan has a really unique ministry, radio ministry, to Cuba and other Latin American countries, getting gospel teaching, gospel preaching into those places uh, over the radio. And their daughter Amy and her husband Archimedes, um, they live there in Hawada and minister in the church there. So Brian, brother, you come and open God's word to us today. Thank you, brother. Buenos dias. Greetings from your church family in Sinaloa, Mexico. Always a blessing for us to be able to come to Redemption Hill when we're back in Kansas and to see how the Lord is continuing to bless this body and grow this body of believers. Uh, counted a privilege to share in the pulpit ministry of one of my favorite preachers. So that's the, the disappointing part about coming to Redemption Hill when I preach is I don't get to hear my brother uh, preach to me. But it, we've always uh, enjoyed our time coming back here, and we're so thankful for this church that has been praying for us, and we loved having Pastor J.D. and Sarah and others from this congregation down to minister to us and with us earlier this year. Well, we, we had hoped to be back up in Kansas back in May and June, but as you know, the entire world's been a bit loco uh, over these past months, and uh, both sides of the border. I don't know what your experiences have been. I know everybody's experiences have been a little bit different uh, with all that has gone on and continues to go on with this ever-changing environment that we find ourselves living in at this time. But for, for our folks and for us back home, we've dealt with a lot of death this year. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that things are any worse there than they are here, but uh, our hospitals aren't equipped to handle most things, even in a better uh, a year that doesn't have as many challenges as we've had this year, uh, but most of us have had fellow believers who have unexpectedly gone home to be with Jesus this year, and we know others who have entered into the eternal damnation of hell. Whether or not that has been the case for you, uh, your experience may have been quite different, but I think it's safe to say that for just about everyone, this year has brought forth a great deal of trials, challenges, new things that we've had to experience, difficulties. For some, the trials have been more in the form of inconveniences and frustrations, adjustments and adaptations, maybe even fears concerning things yet unknown. For others, the trials have been much more substantial. Uncertainties concerning education plans, cancellations, job loss, even marital difficulties, having to find a new church family this year, Severe illnesses related to and unrelated to COVID, and even the unexpected deaths of loved ones. Danielle and I started out this year losing nine-year-old Abel 
a boy who was considered a nephew to us, after watching his body deteriorate day by day as doctors struggled to diagnose his particular illness. And for us, it was a great ministry to have your pastor and Sarah there with us as we went through that time of trial earlier this year. You know, ministering to that family, both before and after Abel's death, brought back many memories and unleashed, unleashed a wave of emotions in my life as I felt at times that we were reliving in many ways what we had gone through with our little Rebecca many years before. I don't know what this year has been like for you or what the Lord may have for you just around the corner. But whatever your situation currently is or soon may be, I want to assure you that you have cause to rejoice and have confidence in our Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope is alive because we have a living Savior. Christ Jesus, our resurrected Lord. Come what may, our hope and confidence must rest upon Jesus. Our God is sovereign, all-powerful. He, he loves us and He takes care of us with perfect wisdom, abundant grace, and infinite mercy. It doesn't matter what kind of trial you're facing today or what kind of trial you will be facing tomorrow, even if you are facing death itself, by God's grace, you can rejoice in Jesus. And to help us do that, I want to preach a passage of hope and encouragement from a Hebrew song written by a man who truly understood what it was like to live in the face of death. How can we? No. How should we face whatever the trials are that get set before us? How should we respond even if we find ourselves in the face of death itself? So, so to help us in our consideration this morning, I want us to turn to a song written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by someone who truly faced death and even so placed his confidence in God. This morning, we're going to consider the Psalm of David, Psalm 16. In Psalm 16, we have a song of confidence in the Lord written by a man who truly understood what it was like to be pursued by those who wished to take his life. And while we do not know for sure the exact circumstances or the particular situation that David was confronted with when he wrote the words to this inspired song, we do have the response of a man who even in the faith of death itself experienced joy and hope in God. And what motivates us this morning is not the faith of David, but rather the God who was the worthy object of his confidence. Our hope in the face of death is the Lord who lives. For this reason, we can rejoice in times of trials. It has been said that no one is ready to truly experience life to its fullest until he has become ready to die. We can boldly and calmly stand by faith in the face of death when our dependence is fully placed on our triumphant Lord. If we come to the place where we are ready to face death itself in that way, then we can also face any other kind of trial with that secure confidence in the Lord. So here in Psalm 16, we'll consider three characteristics that are evidenced in the lives of those who rejoice in times of trials. Actually, there are much more than three here, but in my desire to present the teachings in a, of this psalm in a more simplified structure, I've categorized the characteristics under three primary areas that are found in this passage. And we'll hold off on reading the entire text at this time and rather just walk through Psalm 16 verse by verse together. And so, Father, we approach this psalm, this song that was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we ask, Lord, that you would help us to have our minds set upon you, that you'd take from us any distractions so that your Spirit may work and bring about encouragement and conviction, whatever the need may be in the lives of each believer here today. 
We pray also for those who have never come to the point of repentance of their sins and ask, Lord, that you would reveal yourself through your word to them as well. I ask, Lord, that you would help me as I communicate your word to communicate clearly the message that uh, you have given to us from this psalm so that you might be glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name for his glory. Well, let me ask you something before we delve into the text this morning. Are you a maturing Christian whose life is known by others to rejoice in times of personal trials? Do you rejoice when you find yourselves in times of great difficulty? As we work through this text, I want us to evaluate our own lives before Christ and before others. I want us to reflect upon what kind of testimony we have before our lost family, our unsaved neighbors, and our co-workers who need to see the power of Christ working through us and giving us joy as we consider these three characteristics that are evidenced in the lives of those who rejoice in times of trials. And the first category of characteristics as seen in our text that should be evidenced in our lives as we rejoice in times of trials found here in, verse, in the first four verses is that of convictions expressed through commitments to God. Convictions expressed through commitments to God. And we see these convictions expressed through commitments to God beginning right here in verse 1 with a dependence upon the Savior. Verse 1 says, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. You see, believers who, who have lives that rejoice in times of trials have deep convictions about God based upon the truth of God, which will then be expressed in commitments to God. And the first of those convictions that we see here in our text is dependence upon the Savior. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. Can you see the conviction that is then in the way that is then expressed in commitment, he says, protect me, keep me, save me, preserve me, O God. And we have this petition of the psalmist crying out to God to preserve his life in the face of death, which, which is an expression of his faith, his, his firm, deep-seated conviction that God is truly able to save. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. And there we have the commitment. His conviction was expressed by his commitment to take refuge in God. Those who rejoice in times of trials call out to God because they truly believe what his word says about him and their commitment is then a reflection of that conviction. So to where do you turn in times of difficulty? We need to ask ourselves that question. But not only do we see a dependence upon the Savior, we also hear a declaration about the sovereign in verse 2. It says, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good besides you. He is both Savior and Lord. He is the Lord God, the sovereign over everything. Again, we see that conviction about God expressed in his commitment to God. He says, I said to the Lord, that's the Lord Yahweh, the God who keeps His covenant. You are my Lord. My Lord. It's personal. Lord Adonai, my sovereign, my chief, my master. So, so we note the commitment of absolute submission to the Lord as an expression of the conviction that the Lord is both sovereign master and the covenant-keeping God. The God who keeps His promises. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. No good apart from you. Literally, he says, my good is not beyond you, Lord. He is affirming the truth that is declared to us in James 1.17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Everything good comes from God. And more than that, there is no good apart from God. There is no need to look beyond Him. So let me ask you, brother, 
When you face life's greatest challenges, do you fully submit your life to our Lord? Do you seek His Word to obey His will? Do you handle your finances and your business dealings according to His mandates even when things get really hard? Do you recognize God as the giver of all good things? Or do you look beyond Him for other ways to handle your situations when the going gets tough? Those who find joy even in the face of death are those who see the Lord as the sovereign, and the source of every good thing. Everything that is truly good. The next commitment we see in verse 3 is delight in the saints. Delight in the saints. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. These saints, these majestic ones, these are fellow believers Saints are those who have been sanctified, having received the imputed righteousness of Christ that is not their own, that they now seek to practice righteousness in the process of progressive sanctification. Those who rejoice in times of trials find satisfaction and joy. Their delight is in God and in God's people. God's family is one of those good gifts that He gives to us. And as we think about God's people today being the, our, our family in Christ, we understand that any true faith in Christ is also coupled together with a real love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. In that same way that was exemplified by the believers that received Paul's letter to the Colossians. Colossians 1.4, he said, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love which you have for all the saints. But think about it for a moment. One of the biggest temptations that believers have when they experience life's greatest challenges is the temptation to pull back from their church family. To get so wrapped up in their own situation or trying to deal with their own problems that they start to become distant from fellow believers, and at the, same, at the same time, when they most need fellowship and corporate worship, they soon have, soon have neither. I've seen it happen many times, and the effects are often tragic. Do not rob yourself of the goodness of God gifted to you in giving you a church family by allowing self-worship to consume you during your times of difficulty. Now back in Psalm 16, verse 4, he continues with this commitment, a commitment we could call a dedication to separation. He says, The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. Basically what we have here is the opposite side of the same thing, or, or the same declaration in reverse. Rather than going hard after God and delighting in His people, unbelievers are those who reject Yahweh, the one true covenant-keeping God, and worship false gods. They will not find refuge in joy. The sorrows of those who have bartered for, traded for, pursued another God will be multiplied. Their sorrows will be multiplied. Now listen, my friends, not, not all roads lead to God, regardless what our pluralistic society may be preaching today. Some folks will tell you that all religion has at least a little bit of good, and that all beliefs have at least some eternal value. But that is just simply a lie. Acts 4.12 tells us that there is, no, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. In Christ alone and in His work on the cross is the only place that we can receive forgiveness for our sins and truly live. But one of you may be thinking, Pastor, I, I don't really need all that forgiveness stuff. 
I mean, I'm having way too much fun right now to worry about rejoicing when times get tough. Well, if that is you, would you listen to me for a moment? One of these days, God may bring you to the end of yourself. And you may find that the God that you have been worshiping in that selfie is going to have to deal with the feeling of guilt. Real guilt concerning real sin. The sorrows of those who have bartered for, traded for, pursued another God will be multiplied. You may try to wash it down with whiskey, ignore it under the influences of other intoxications. You may attempt to deaden the pain with the prescription or talk it away with excuses provided by some so-called expert. Even pretend it is not there as you pursue personal and private pleasures, but at the end of the day, you will not escape the guilt that will plague your conscience. Proverbs 13 verse 15 declares that the way of the sinner is hard. Isaiah 57, 20 and 21 says, but, for, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuge in mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. But you, my friend, can experience peace if you're willing to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Now let's consider the rest of the verse. He says, I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. Again, what we see here in verse 4 is a dedication to separation. Unlike those who pursue the worship of their false gods, the psalmist declares his dedication to separating from making such vows. He finds his joy in submitting to the faithful God rather than sacrificing to a false god. In walking in godliness rather than worshiping with the godless. Those who rejoice in times of trials will be found worshiping the faithful God with saints who revere Him rather than wandering towards false gods with the sinners who reject Him. And let me remind you that not all false gods are worshipped in the way that is mentioned in our text. Whatever or whoever you prioritize in your life over the pursuit of the Lord can become an idol that you worship. And some idols can only be seen when we look in the mirror. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. It was from this phrase that I chose the word commitment in describing the precept that's proclaimed in verses 1 through 4. Convictions expressed through commitments to God. And that last commitment is a dedication to separation in verse 4. Separation from ungodliness unto God. It is being devoted to pursuing holiness. A separation from the worship of other gods and a reaffirmation of loyalty to Yahweh, the one true living God who keeps His promises. The good sent from God is enjoyed by the godly, separated unto God. It is the pursuit of holiness in the pursuit of holiness that we experience the pleasure of happiness. Those who truly rejoice in life's trials are those who revere the Lord triumphant. And remember the Hebrew song that was penned here for us today is, is a song written by a man who is facing death and at the same time living with inexplicable joy. Our hope in the face of death is the Lord who lives. For this reason, we can rejoice in times of trials. The next category of characteristics, evidence in the lives of those who rejoice in times of trials, found in verses 5 through 7, is a certitude experienced because of the care of God. Now before we get into these next few verses, let me explain what is meant by the word certitude as I'm using it here and why I chose it. I realize it's probably not a really common word for most people. But, but I'm thinking of a specific meaning and selecting a precise word here to describe what is, is referred to in these next few verses. We can have certainty about specific truths or facts. 
And when it comes to what we know with certainty to be true about God and, and, and what God has promised us through His Word, with that certainty comes an assurance. More than merely a cognitive certainty about the truth, there is an emotional element in response to that truth. So I chose certitude to try to capture that state of emotion, that, that sense, that feeling of assurance based upon the certainty concerning the truth about God and His promises. Now, if there's any English teachers here today that would want to quibble over that exact uh, shade of meaning, I do admit I, I had to have Mr. Webster's help, and I could still be wrong about that exact shade of meaning. But uh, I have spent the last 22 years of my life ministering in Mexico, so I've admittedly lost any handle on the English language that I might have had at one time. But, but I do think we're going to, as we move forward in the text, we'll be able to capture what I'm trying to convey here, what this text is trying to convey to us. Those who rejoice in times of trials have certitude experienced because of the care of God. And since the psalmist expresses his certitude, the certitude he, that he experiences um, because of the care of God in, in first person, Speaking directly to God in verse 5, you support my lot, he says. I've tried to capture the, the essence of his words and restate them as, a per, as personal declarations to God. So in verse 5, we see that certitude, that feeling of assurance that was experienced because of God's care expressed to the Lord in this way. Your provision offers me care. Your provision offers me care. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance. His certitude overflows in His personal experience because of God's promises of care. God satisfies His desires and His needs. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance. Even greater than any physical material inheritance, we as God's children have a spiritual inheritance in the Lord. And here the person who is known to rejoice in times of trials expresses that his portion is Yahweh himself. Even as we think about the inheritance of a physical land that was given to Israel and consider that the land was divided among the tribes of Israel, we remember that the sons of Levi, while receiving certain cities, did not receive their own territory or their own division of land. Like, like the other tribes did in that inheritance that was received. But notice what is said about them in Joshua. Joshua 13, verse 33. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses did not give an inheritance. The Lord, the God of Israel, is their inheritance, as He had promised to them. I believe that is the mindset of the psalmist here. The Lord Yahweh Himself is my satisfaction. He goes on, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. The, the cup can refer to a blessed destiny or future, or, or when combined with the term portion, can at times refer to provisions, which provide strength. So not only does the psalmist acknowledge the Lord as his satisfaction, but also as his sustainer, his support, his strength. Verse 5 ends with these words, Unto the Lord, you support my lot. Here, the one who rejoices in times of trials speaks of his certitude experienced because of the care of God, expressing his assurance that the Lord will prosper him with a secure future. The Lord Yahweh is his security. Your provision offers me care. You, Lord, you are my satisfaction. You are my sustainer, my support, my strength. You, O Lord, are my security. And next he proclaims, Your providence orders my circumstances. Verse 6. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. The lines speak of boundaries around the beautiful place of blessing that has been inherited. It's a conceptual image that would have resonated with the children of Israel since the days of Joshua. The idea here is that our sovereign God, who, who ordains all the circumstances in our lives, and, and, and not only that, He does so for our good and for His glory. 
Your providence orders my circumstances. And then your precepts orient my course. Verse 7. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. God provides us the instruction that we need to direct us. His direction for us comes from His counsel to us. And His counsel is given to us through His Word. Psalm 119 verse 24 says, Your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. When the psalmist says in verse 7 that his mind or his heart instructs him in the night, he is referring to the way that God instructs us as we meditate upon His Word. As we pause to reflect upon His counsel and let it fill our thoughts and control our emotions. Psalm Psalm 63, uh, verse 6 and 7 says, When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. Those who rejoice in times of trials not only have convictions expressed through commitments to God, also they have certitude experienced because of the care of God, But finally, we'll see in verses 8-11 through that those who rejoice in times of trials are known for their confidence evidenced by contentment in God. But before we drill down on these final verses, let me ask you, are you known as a person whose confidence is evidenced by contentment in God? As you rejoice when you find yourselves in times of trials? Or does your family... And your friends know you as someone who begins to fall apart at the seams when you face life's difficult challenges. If the latter is true, then you need to evaluate whether or not God is truly enough for you. Is Yahweh your satisfaction, your strength, and your security? Or are you leaning on an idol that needs to be destroyed and replaced with Jesus? Those who rejoice in times of trials are known for their confidence evidenced by contentment in God. Listen to just verses 9 and 11. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Did you hear those expressions of joy? My heart is glad, my glory, my soul, my my whole being rejoices. Verse 9, verse 11. In your presence is fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. Found in the right hand of God. How can a man who is being pursued by those who wish to take his life be so joyful? And how can we, too, rejoice in our times of deepest trials? Our joy depends on our confidence in the promises of God. So are you rejoicing in times of trials? Let me ask you this. Do you know the promises of God? If you're not rejoicing in times of trials, that's a good question. Do we know? What God has promised us. Do you know the promises of God? Are you meditating on those precious promises of our Lord? Where do you turn to to find counsel? True confidence will be evidenced by enjoying, delighting, and finding contentment in the pleasures of God. Or we could say it this way. Experimenting joy in times of trials demonstrates faith. In the promises of God. Or more precisely, demonstrates faith in the God who promises. Taking God at His word results in a life that rejoices in times of trial. So in verses 8-11, through we see confidence evidenced by contentment in God. There are just two things that we'll take note of here. First, let me direct our attention to the rejoicing confidence. Resting on The promises. Resting on the promises. That is confidence. Rejoicing because of the promises. That is the result 
of that confidence. So we have a rejoicing confidence. I have set the Lord continually before me, he says. Notice, he has taken action here. He says, I have set the Lord continually before me. He has taken action. His faith was not passive. Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. Matthew 6.33, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. Returning to Psalm 16, verse 8, because He is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Does your life demonstrate stability? A firm resilience in times of trials? Or, or do you get shaken up and tossed all about when you find yourself under pressure? In verse 8, we have the psalmist's declaration. And then in verses 9-11, through 11, he explains to us how we can experience such stability. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell secure, securely. This is a rejoicing of the total being. Your heart, your soul, even your physical body rejoicing. For you will not abandon my soul in Sheol. That is the place of the dead. Even with one foot over the grave, we can still rejoice. Our Lord can save us from death. But, but even better yet, our Lord can save us through death. As believers, we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Our ultimate hope is to be placed in Christ of the resurrection. The one that we celebrate when we gather each Sunday. We'll return to verse 10 in a moment, but to dig a little deeper in that, I want to dig a little deeper in verse 10, but first just jump down with me to verse 11 so that we can engrave this in our hearts. It says, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forever. There is a confidence evidenced by contentment in God. Resting on the promises brings an assured confidence. In the Lord there is unshakable stability. We are secure, never to be abandoned. Rejoicing because of the promises is the result of that confidence. In the Lord, our hearts are made glad. Our whole being rejoices in His presence, His fullness of joy at His right hand. Eternal pleasures. This is a rejoicing confidence. But now as I promised, let us return to verse 10. Before we do, I want to ask us all to think for a moment about the structure of this psalm. As I tell our folks in in Mexico, listening to sermons should never be something passive. We, we need to actively engage our minds with the preacher as he works through the text. So before we get into verse 10, I need to help us understand a little bit about Hebrew poetry. Sometimes in Hebrew poetry, we find synonymous parallelisms, as they're called. That's where we read two lines in the statement where the second part of the statement is simply a way to repeat the same idea that we saw in the first. We have an instance of this in Psalm 6 and verse 1, where it says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. It repeats the same idea in that second line. But if we make the mistake of thinking that all Hebrew parallelisms are like that, then we're going to have problems understanding what's going on here in Psalm 16. Here in Psalm 16, we're seeing another type of parallelism being used, where the second part of that statement doesn't merely repeat what is being said in the first part, but it adds something more. It's a way of saying something like, just as, if, just as this is true, then more than this, this also is true. The second part of the second line says something more than the first. Real quickly, let me just run through a few examples in our text that will get us to where we're going. Verse 4, I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, and even more, nor will I take their names upon my lips. No sacrifices, not even a vow. Verse 5, the Lord is my cup, and beyond that, He supports my lot. 
Verse 7, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me, and even more my mind instructs me in the night. Verse 9, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. And now verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. David doesn't say that God will not allow him to die, but simply that he knows that God will not abandon his soul in the place of the dead. But more than that, God will also not allow his Holy One to undergo decay, or that is to see corruption. The body of this Holy One, of whom David speaks, will not rot in the grave. And if we were to assume that the second line is merely repeating the same idea that had been expressed in the first line, we'd miss the glorious truth of this passage. So also notice with me something about the way the, the, the psalmist moves from speaking in first person to second person here. If we, if we walk through the psalm, he says, My refuge, my Lord, my delight, my cup, my lot, my heart, my glory, my flesh, your holy one. Is David merely continuing to speak of himself, or is he speaking of another? Who is this Holy One? Well, the Holy One mentioned in this text, he is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Lord. For those who rejoice in times of trials, there is a confidence evidenced by contentment in God. We have seen this, this rejoicing confidence, but now let us consider the hope that we have in the resurrected Christ. Truly rejoicing in times of trials requires that we understand that our hope, even in the face of death, is the Christ who lives. Our ultimate hope and reason to rejoice is found in Jesus, the resurrected Christ. And even as we've considered His death on our behalf this morning in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, we understand that the evidence that His death accomplished what it did for us is found in the fact that the grave could not hold Him captive. Our hope in the face of death and reason that we can rejoice in times of trials is the Christ who lives. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Why do we take so much time to walk through the structure of this psalm and show how the second line says something more than the first? Well, in part it's because this verse is cited by two, in, in two sermons given by both Peter and Paul at least in their summary form recorded for us in the book of Acts. And they did so because this is exactly what David intended for them to understand from this verse. They didn't use some apostolic hermeneutic that allowed them to, to use certain passages out of context to say something about Christ that the Old Testament author never intended. They might have seen much more than many see today, but that's only because they knew the Old Testament much better than many do today. Why is this so important to understand? Because we believe in the perspicuity or, or the clarity of Scripture. It was written to be understood by those who received it. And while we do understand that some things have been, become much more readily understood by us today through progressive revelation, we don't believe that the Old Testament Scriptures were somehow impossible to understand by those who received them because they didn't yet have the New Testament. We want to be careful we don't allow anyone to convince us that somehow it's okay to interpret the Bible in such a way that we can change the original intended meaning just to get to Christ. As one author has stated, we can't practice the magic of pulling messianic rabbits out of non-messianic texts. So that is why I wanted you to see how David was intending for his words to be understood before we now jump to the New Testament. Now let's take a look at how verse 10 was used by the New Testament authors. First, let's go to Acts chapter 2, where we find a summary of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. I'm going to start reading Acts chapter 2 and verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. 
Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. For David says of him, of Jesus, and here we have Peter's citation of Psalm 16, 8-11. He says, For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul in Hades, the place of the dead, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You, have, you, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now listen to how Peter continues his argument. He says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, David died. He saw corruption. His body decayed in the tomb just a little ways from here where we stand today on the day of Pentecost. You know the place. His decayed body is still there. Now verse 30. And so because he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Yes, the body of King David decayed in the grave, but when he wrote Psalm 16 and verse 10, he prophesied concerning another king, King Jesus, the second David, who was promised to come in the lineage of David as a royal descendant to take his throne. David's hope was secured by Jesus, who, like David, also was not abandoned, but even more, did not rot in the grave. We, too, rejoice in the resurrected Christ, who secured our resurrection. Now jump over to Acts 13. We'll jump into the sermon here in verse 22, just after Paul finishes giving a little history of Israel up through Saul being removed as king. Acts 13, beginning verse 22. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Paul continues speaking of the way that Jesus the Christ was prophesied, announced, crucified, and resurrected. We'll jump back in at verse 34. He says, As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And then from there he again cites, here he begins to cite Psalm 16 and verse 10. Therefore he also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And then he continues with the explanation. He says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. The wages of sin is death, but Jesus conquered the power of sin at the cross and proved His victory over sin when He was gloriously resurrected from the dead. Because of Christ's resurrection, we can rest confidently and rejoice finding our contentment in Him. This is precisely the reason I presented the teachings of Psalm 16, 8-11 as a confidence ex- evidence by contentment. We have a rejoicing confidence and a focus on the resurrected Christ. Acts 2, 30 and 31 clearly proclaims of David that because he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to see one of his descendants on his throne. So he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, the Christ. We can rejoice in times of trials 
because our hope, even in the face of death, and therefore in anything else, is in Christ who lives. Jesus Christ, God himself, the promised Messiah, took on human flesh, lived among those he created to fulfill all righteousness and give his life a ransom for many. He was crucified for his, for his own to pay the penalty for their sin, for those who will repent of their sin and trust in him, in his work on the cross and in his glorious resurrection. For those who have not trusted in Jesus, I pray that your spiritually blinded eyes will be illuminated today to see Jesus as He has been revealed from His Word. And for all of us, no matter what trials we face, that we might rejoice in the resurrected Christ. That we might rejoice in Him with convictions expressed through commitments to God. With certitude experienced because of the care of God and with confidence evidenced by contentment in God. Father, we thank You for giving us this text of Scripture to encourage our hearts and exhort us to live day by day experiencing the trials that are set before us in such a way that as we rejoice in You, others can see the joy that we have in Christ and give us opportunities, opportunities to proclaim Him to those who seek to have what only we have, because only we have that secure confidence in the resurrection. We thank you, Lord, that even in the face of death, and therefore in all other trials, we can rejoice and experience the joy in Jesus that you have given to us. And I pray, Lord, that that would be experienced by all of our fellow believers gathered here today, and that those who have yet to repent of their sin and come to Christ would be convicted of their sin and that their eyes would be illuminated by your Holy Spirit to see Jesus as he is revealed to us in the pages of Holy Scripture, that they too might come to faith in him and be converted into those who will not only rejoice in Christ but become avid worshipers of Jesus because you deserve all. We ask this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.